Hello, everyone, and welcome to Talk Nerdy. Today is Monday, March 9th, 2020, and I'm the host of the show, Cara Santa Maria. And I want to start, as I always do, by thanking those of you who have made Talk Nerdy possible this week. Remember, the show is and will always be 100% free to download, and that's because of the support from listeners just like you. The top supporters this week include Michael Gaucher, Mary Neva, Pasquale Gelati, Sinai, Ulrika Hagman, Dudas Infinitas, The Zombie Drummer, Brian Holden, Pedro M. Rosario Barbosa, Daniel Lang, David J.E. Smith. I was missing an and there, but that's everyone top supporters, though. There's so many other supporters in my list, and I just want to thank you all so much from the bottom of my heart. You guys are awesome, and you keep this show alive. All right, guys. So this week, I had the incredible opportunity to chat with a world-renowned mycologist. He's also the author of a brand new book, Fungipedia, a brief compendium of mushroom lore. So without any further ado, guys, here he is, Dr. Lawrence Millman, also known as Larry. Well, Larry, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Delighted to be talking with you. Yeah, so I'm really excited to talk about your newest book. And of course, this is the newest of several um, called Let's see if I can pronounce it right, because everybody loves to pronounce this word really differently. Um, I'm going to say fungipedia, a brief compendium of mushroom lore. Do you say uh, fungipedia or fungipedia? You hit, the nail, you hit the nail on the head. It's fungipedia. Yay! Uh, I had but, a professor once who said, it's fungi, not fun guy. <laughs> right. You know that joke? Uh, people <laughs> coming up to me saying, you must be a fun guy, and then bursting into laughter. Uh, I, it, it's happened about 9,800 times. And <laughs> uh, when they do that, um, uh, I put on a fake accent and say, in a, maybe a Russian accent, I do not know what you are talking about. Yeah, right. And, so you pr- and, and you pronounce the word then fungi? I pronounce it fungi. There are fungi, many, okay. Okay, there are very few fungi out at this time of year. Uh, that would be what I would say. But, you know, there is no real rule. Uh, if I suppose you looked it up uh, somewhere online, perhaps it would say alternate pronunciations. Fungi, yeah. fungi, fun, uh, fungi is not as common. Interesting. Okay, cool. That could be my southern roots. I, I went to college in Texas, so yes. we pronounce everything strangely down there. You, you, you do, but are you a Texan? I am born and raised in Texas, but I've lived in LA now for I think coming on twelve years. I don't, I don't detect even a hint of a Texas accent in your voice. That's what that's what I'm often told, and strangely, I don't think I ever had one. So, but you should hear my parents and my sister speak. They have thick accents, apparently. Was, it, yeah, was it Austin? Uh, no, it was Dallas, actually, which oh. has its own special accent. Oh, yeah, I know. Austin <laughs> people people are often, you know, a, a little bit higher up on the uh, uh, proverbial podium, and they speak a little bit more haughtily because of the university. So I've, I've mistaken Texas. Not, uh, people from Austin, uh, I have not thought were from Texas, uh, hmm. even though, because they're from Austin. So that's why I thought you might be from Austin. And where were you um when you were a professor, where were you positioned? 
uh, University of Iceland, University of Minnesota, University of New Hampshire, Tufts University, and Harvard University. Wow, you had five different faculty positions, and they really uh, ran the gamut. Iceland. Oh, I forgot. Uh, Goddard College. Oh, so six. Okay. Um, Iceland must have been an exciting experience. Are there a lot of mushrooms in Iceland? Oh, absolutely. Uh, It's a very interesting place for mushrooms, and I've done actually quite a bit of mushroom work there. Um, But uh, yeah, that was by far my most interesting teaching experience, mostly because the uh, students there were incredibly eager to learn. Mm -hmm. And uh, at some of the other schools, maybe a little bit less so. They just wanted to get the, a degree and, and uh, become an assistant in daddy's office. Gotcha. Interesting. But here... Um, but so, in Iceland, so- it was different. And I actually had a love affair with Iceland. I really, at the time, I, I thought it was the, the sanest, healthiest place in the world. And I liked living there. And I think that aided and abetted my teaching abilities. <laughs> so where are you located now? In Cambridge, Massachusetts. Oh, nice. I really like Cambridge. You've been there. I have. I have. It's a really good um, It's a really good town. It's small. It's easy, but it's near enough to Boston. And then it, you're near enough to New York City. And I don't know. There's a very community kind of feel there. Well, I feel exactly the opposite. Uh, that <laughs> Boston and New York City are near to Cambridge. <laughs> Uh, because I would much rather be here than in either of those two places. That's fair. Uh, You know, (laughs) massive uh, urban, um, we call them uh, urban nightmares. (laughs) Well, you know, I live now in L.A., which is a pretty big urban center, but it is a little bit different because it's a much more, compared to a place like New York, for example, LA has a lot more green space and yes. it's much more almost like suburban in nature, even though it's an urban center. People live in houses, they have land, they have yards, and we have a, a lot of really beautiful parks. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and you're, you're uh, one of the Guinness um, record holders with respect to gridlock traffic. Um, that's true (laughs) I I mean you're not at the the very top Uh, I was just in Puerto Rico and that that was pretty close I was actually doing mycological work there Um, you know I like to go to places that are sort of terra incognitas with respect to the study of mushrooms and uh, a lot of tropical places and a lot of arctic places are the temperate places, or, I mean, even the Southwest, I would put that in the temperate world, uh, mm-hmm. more or less the temperate world and where I live, more work has been done. But if one goes up to Greenland or down to Puerto Rico, very little work has been done. Indeed, uh, I found a species on this recent trip that probably is new to science. Oh, very cool. And so when you say like work in mycology or work with mushrooms, you know, what does that really ultimately mean? You are a mycologist or somebody who has studied mushrooms throughout your career and you know an awful lot about them. Excuse me, not throughout my career. Uh, I I, uh, evolved to study mushrooms and I'll tell you how I I evolved to study mushrooms. Uh, I spent a lot of time doing ethnographic work Mm. with native people in the north. Okay. Uh, I would collect stories, myths, taboos, lore, 
uh, folk medicine, and every once in a while, a person, usually an older person, an elder, would tell me about the use of a certain fungus. Okay. Uh, I'm going to be using fungus and mushroom interchangeably. Sure. And I got interested in that. And because I had already interest, been interested in the natural world and insects and uh, spiders and reptiles, my mother uh, knew that I loved snakes and she would when she she would go on canoeing trips and bring me back if she saw a snake, bring it back as a present for me. Very <laughs> nice of her. Not many mothers would do that. I would walk through the house with the snake wrapped around my neck, and no one, no one seemed to mind. <laughs> uh, but at any rate, it was uh, a short hop and jump from my collecting of ethnographic lore to seriously studying fungi, uh, not uh, all that much on an academic level, uh, because by that time, my uh, imprisonments were few and far between. And by imprisonment, you mean uh, academic positions. (laughs) Yes. I am currently a research associate at Harvard, meaning that I can use the libraries, I can use the microscopes. uh, And what I especially do is I donate specimens to Harvard uh, that um, are maybe unusual or rare. Um, uh, I dry them, put them in an envelope, and donate them. Oh, very cool. You have that kind of um, symbiotic relationship. Yeah, but uh, you could do it too, Tara. Uh, I mean, if you huh. found, for instance, an, uh, a mushroom uh, outside uh, somewhere, um, if you managed to... Uh, if you're stuck in the midst of the gridlock in LA and you say, to hell mm-hmm. with this, you climb out of your car, there's a bit of green space, and you find something very unusual looking, you study it, uh, and maybe you don't identify it. You give it to someone there who does, and I know someone in San Diego who can help you, and they said, oh, this is really unusual. You would dry it, put an envelope, and send it to the Farlow Herbarium at Harvard, and they would mm. accept it, even though you're not a prisoner of war there. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's very cool. I mean, citizen science is, as that's what it's call called. It. Yes, citizen yeah. science. Exactly. I love that. Yeah, but my interest uh, in mycology, as it's called, is not in academia today. It it there's a big focus on phylogenetics, DNAing things, finding out if this indeed is the same species everyone has always called it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the any number of mycologists now in academia would have a hard time identifying a specimen that their teachers could identify in an instant because they are basically stuck within the... um, uh, let's say the hallowed halls of academia, and they don't go out into the field that much. I'm more of a field person. I want to see, I want the experience of looking at and studying what that mushroom is doing in the field. And then I will bring it back and study it microscopically. And then yeah, on okay. rare occasions, uh, if 
I think it's most unusual or rare or something, I will uh, give it to somebody to DNA. But I believe that, and I say this in the, the Fungipedia, by the way, in the, I, I think, I can't remember now which of the entries, could be phylogenetics. Uh, I say this has gone overboard, uh, you know, and I mentioned that uh, uh, one of my gurus, uh, Gary Linkoff, uh, you know who he was? He wrote the Audubon Guide to Mushrooms. Oh, okay. With mm-hmm. respect to name change, um, uh, he said, I feel like I'm suffering from early onset Alzheimer's. Uh, I have to come up, I have to remember a new name for uh, a species each day because yeah. of those name changes. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, so, so th- there are different approaches for sure. There are very different approaches for, and you you could probably have a talk nerdy in, interview with a phylogeneticist. A, a lot of us people in my, we, we refer to these people not as mycologists, but as molecular biologists. Mm-hmm. And, and so go ahead. We, we refer to you, um, or you are often referred to as a mycologist. What did you actually study in school? And like when you were, um, working as a professor and a researcher, what department were you in? Wow. Um, we only have an hour. Because uh, <laughs> I, I mean, I, mycology is very specific, right? Like at a museum, there may be a whole mycology department, but usually at a university, you're going to be within a, a larger kind of ecology or... Yeah, you're right. Um, uh, and I, I regard the uh, varied... Uh, areas of my study as being mm. very useful with respect to mycology because it gives me a broader contextual window than mm. someone who started out uh, very young and pursued simply systematics, uh, i.e. identification. So uh, I, I ended up uh, getting a degree in English literature. Then okay. um, I... But I, at the time, I was thinking of getting a degree in comparative literature, uh, meaning that I was interested in the literature of Europe. So I got a degree in English, and I have to say that most of the v- best scientific writers now have degrees in English. You've heard of David Quammen. Of course, yeah. And Carl Zimmer. Oh, yeah. These are big science writers, for sure. Yeah, both have degrees in English. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you do see this crossover with science journalism oftentimes where there's one camp that came up through sort of the natural sciences um, and then another camp that came up through either journalism or literature and mm-hmm. then sort of learned the other um, uh, tools um, kind of on the job, which is very cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, no, that's very true. And then I, well, we, we haven't finished. We've hardly started. Uh, mm-hmm. I taught I taught um, both creative writing, uh, fiction writing, but I also taught natural history writing uh, mm. because I was a, by then uh, a rabid naturalist. And so that uh, those were the things I taught. And then in Iceland, because I was an American, I taught American literature, but I also taught English, that is how to write in English. And I would take students out and uh, we would have some experience. It would always be the outdoors. And actually, it was not always. There was one time when I took them to the waiting room at the local airport 
and told them to write up the experience because it was an interesting one. What was this class doing in the waiting room? All the waiting passengers thought as I was chatting. I wanted them to experience something different, and they did, <laughs> and they yeah. wrote it up. Uh, and then I tried to make my literature, uh, teaching of American literature, a bit different, too. Uh, I, I am a great uh, admirer of Henry David Thoreau. Mm -hmm. And so I was teaching Walden. But I wanted okay. to teach it in an appropriate place. And the place I chose was the large Reykjavik swimming pool. <laughs> uh, a body of water. It was too. It would have been too cold in Iceland to uh, go into a lake. Uh, my students would all suffer from hypothermia, and I'd be blamed. But uh, a, a heated swimming pool was not a problem. So we all were in one corner of the swimming pool, holding our copies of Walden, and I was talking to them. Wow, that's. I mean, it's definitely a. Uh different experience, I think, than most students, um, than most students are offered and a really different, I mean, we still haven't completely covered your path. Um, it's such a, oh, a it's different just approach it's to just science. Beginning. Yeah. It's just beginning. I mean, earlier you mentioned ethnography, which, yes. um, I, I, I'm really excited to talk to you about, and it seems like that probably really, um, not only has influenced your work uh, throughout your career, but also has influenced your writing, especially with with this new book that we're we're going to get into a little bit more. Um, Fungipedia, how it's you know it's kind of like an encyclopedia mm -hmm. of, of uh, fungi, um, fungi as I call it. Um, there is this real kind of mythology approach to it, right? Like you have science terms in here, of course, but then you have all of these stories about these different mushrooms, this different fungus, and exactly mm -hmm. how we know what we know about it and what we think about it and what, you know, kind of myths have been developed about it. And I can only imagine that you wear that lens a lot when you're doing your science. Yes, I do. And uh, there's, there's actually a fairly neat segue because okay. uh, by the time I got my PhD, I was um, tired of academia, and I wanted to experience the opposite world. So I went to live in the west of Ireland, where people live not by the written word, but by the spoken word. And okay. uh, I hung out with traditional people, storytellers, they're called Shanakis, uh, traditional craftspeople, small farmers. And I wrote my first book called Our Like Will Not Be There Again about the experience, this experience. Um, and Our Like Will Not Be Again uh, is it's sort of a, a translation of the mm -hmm. last line of a book uh, in Irish called Antoilanach, meaning the Islandman, uh, written by a, a fellow in uh on a remote island in the west of the island, uh, island is the great blasket. He saw life changing all around him. And so the last sentence is, in the book is, I, I am writing down these words because our life will not be there again. And so that's what I felt in my wanderings, collecting lore that's going to disappear off the face of the earth because of the rapid, vehement, not necessarily healthy changes going on on our planet. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, 
And so from Ireland, I ended up in Greenland. I collected some stories in Greenland. Uh, actually, it was not quite like that. Ireland, Iceland. And periodically when I was in Iceland, I had a friend who was a pilot in Iceland who had a girlfriend in East Greenland. And that's a hour and a half, two-hour flight. Okay. And I would pop a lift with him. And while he was visiting her, I'd wander about. And I got the idea. I mean, when I first started going there, I thought, oh, interesting, exotic, traditional place. But then I got the notion that the stories, as the Irish stories were, were absolutely fascinating and had to be documented. Uh, one thing that I noted was to some extent they had in the past been documented, but they were expurgated. Whereas when people told me stories, they didn't expurgate. Uh, because mm. the words that they used to describe various things uh, were not considered bad or nasty or naughty uh, okay. the way they might be in our own culture. So those words are in the stories. And uh, for young kids, they could listen to some of these stories where, uh, you know, for instance, uh, there's, there's one that I like. Oh, which one? We could go on. Many. I collected a whole book. is called A Kayak Full of Ghosts because I got mm -hmm. a Guggenheim grant to travel around Arctic Canada to collect stories from Inuit people. Oh gosh! And, so there must and be so stories many stories in Greenland too, from Greenlanders who aren't called in, who do not call themselves Inuit. Gotcha. And so you know, you know, it would be no problem whatsoever uh, for a Greenlander to tell a story uh, where uh, a woman has a sexual relationship with a bear. Mm -hmm. But you do that at Saturday morning Grange in some place in America, uh, and say. She asked the bear, will you fuck me? Yeah. Um, that would be uh, a no-no. And the person <laughs> the person who said it might well end up being, I wouldn't say put in prison, but reprimanded severely. Sure. Yeah, it definitely would be more taboo. Yeah. So as I said, when I was collecting stories and lore and taboos, every once in a while I would hear about uh, a fungus. Like, for okay. instance... Uh, a puffball. I don't think I need to explain to you what a puffball is. Uh, like an actual puffball or a puffball fungus? Well, they're they're the same. <laughs> okay. <laughs> a puffball is a type of fungus uh, called a gastro gastromycete. Uh, gastro stomach. It makes its spores on the inside, and then when you tap it, out come the spores. Okay. And the People, the Inuit in northern Canada, use this as a styptic, i.e., let's say you've cut yourself. Mm -hmm. um, what they will do is sprinkle the spores of a puffball into the wound, into the cut. And oh, not, wow. not only will it serve as a styptic, i.e., cause the blood to stop flowing, but it will also have antibiotic properties, too. We all oh, know cool. that. Penicillium, which was turned into penicillin, is a world-renowned antibiotic. But they mm. were there first. And then what they would do was they would put the puffball uh, 
in the old days, they would tie it to wherever the wound was with a spider's web. More, more recently, they would use some string. But this works, by the way, if you harpooned yourself in the stomach and your intestines were coming out, what I've described to you won't work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking about a cut. Yeah. Uh, they could, could have gotten infected, but probably wouldn't given uh, the antibiotic properties of the spores getting into your system. Yeah. Wow. And so how... And then, I, then I would, uh, but I'll, every once in a while, there'd be other stories, uh, a lot pertaining to mushrooms. Uh, there's, there's um, in the central Canadian Arctic, they don't eat mm -hmm. mushrooms at all because they believe that they are the anak, the shit of shooting stars. And that's, <laughs> that's because the shooting stars, you can imagine, leaves a trail of detritus when it's... Uh, traveling across the night sky. Uh -huh. And then suddenly there are mushrooms on the tundra in the next day or two days later. And this is all, this is usually in the fall, which like here where I am is the best time for mushrooms. So they associate, <coughs> excuse me, those mushrooms with the shooting star. And as one, I think I mentioned this in Fungipedia's, one uh, Inuk said to me, uh, I wouldn't want to call up one of my friends and say, hey, come on over for dinner. We're serving the shit of shooting stars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that doesn't sound appealing. It doesn't I've sound always had, I've personally always had an issue with eating mushrooms, too. Oh, that have. Like very, I have. Like that very earthy kind of like they grow on decaying things on the forest. Well, I know they don't all, but they, I don't know. They're, I do have a bit of a hang-up around eating them. I think they're beautiful, and I think they're really interesting, but I've never really enjoyed consuming Well, you, you suffer from what I would call modest mycophobia. Okay. Oh, Not serious, but modest. Yeah, if yeah it was, like I can be near them. <laughs> you can be near them, but, you know, I would hear gagging sounds in this interview if you've suffered from serious microphobia. Mm -hmm. But yeah. I don't hear those I don't hear those gagging sounds. No, and I understand why people enjoy them. Um, and I actually don't so much mind their flavor. Like a, a lot of my friends and I will go out to eat um, hot pot, which is like a traditional Sichuan style where you have like this boiling broth with spicy peppers in it. And then you put in raw foods and you just pull the foods out as they cook. And so um, I'll usually go with a big group of friends and everybody loves mushrooms. And so they'll put mushrooms into the pot and it actually does really flavor the broth well, but the idea of like biting into one is not pleasing <laughs> to me. Well, the texture, some people do have problems with the texture mm -hmm. uh, as well. And some people adore the texture, like Asians, the texture is uh, the most important thing at all. And this is why a number of species that we don't eat, they do eat. Yeah, uh, true, true. I, I, rather, I won't go into those, but um, uh, what I want to say is that for me, yeah, I occasionally eat mushrooms. Uh, I see an edible that I particularly like, I might collect it. Or if I am distracted by another one that looks wild and unusual, I will ignore the edible one and collect the wild and unusual one, forgetting mm -hmm. about the edible one. To me, edibility is the least interesting aspect of any fungus. What it's doing in the natural world, the way it looks, its color, um, 
you know, how it's procreating. All those are so much more interesting than can I stuff it in my mouth? Yeah. <laughs> and will it make me sick? Yeah. yeah, it's funny. I mean, that that kind of goes back to the question that I was hinting to earlier, which is, you know, what does studying um, fungus entail? What is what does it mean really to be a mycologist? And you talked about the um, the kind of genetic approach to these things, but the more I guess. Um, I don't know what you would call it, ecological or just basic physiological, biological approach to studying them. Like what kinds of thing, what kinds of questions are you looking to answer? Well, let me ask you a question. Are you a psychiatrist? Mm -hmm. I am studying to become a psychologist, but my background is actually in neurobiology. So I was, I was kind of a lab scientist first. Okay. Well, I could ask, you know, what is, what is a psychologist study? What is a neurobiologist study? The answers are myriad. It depends on where you want to go. Mm -hmm. And personally, uh, I'm different from the, I mean, there are mycologists, as I've mentioned to you, who spend all their time surrounded by four walls and and do sequencing of mushrooms. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are others who specialize, and I have a couple of friends who do, on the relationships between insects and fungi, i.e. mostly it's to the disadvantage of the insect. Um, I personally am a field-oriented individual. I'm at my happiest. Uh, I'm distracted from whatever woes I have in my uh, real life, my, not my real life, my unreal life indoors. uh, When I'm outside looking for, well, not just mushrooms, but anything in the natural world. Uh, I think about it. uh, I look around. I'm observant. And observe, to me, is the most important word in all of science. Observe. And uh, I hate to throw in yet another rude remark about the phylogenetists, but they're not observing anything other than what appears on their cladograms, which are those, do you know what that is? It's sort of a graph that indicates the connections of one mushroom species to another. Yeah, we see them a lot. They're kind of almost look like these long lines with little lines coming off of them. Yes, we see them exactly. a lot when we look at like dinosaur evolution. Well, pretty much the evolution of anything. That's right. Well, I actually uh, wrote, a st- I occasionally will write mushroom fiction. And I have ah. a little bo- little book called Mushroom Apocalypse uh, about mushroom picture. It's, it, it, it's about a, a pair of well-to-do New Yorkers. There's a nuclear holocaust in New York. And um, well, there's a, all the restaurants seem to be closed, indeed, destroyed. And where are they going to eat? They both like mushroom dishes. And there's a mushroom cloud in the sky. And the woman <laughs> asked the man, do you think that's edible? <laughs> um, anyway, uh, I mentioned the cladogram. And I wrote a story about a mycologist who so devoted that he gets imprisoned inside one of them. And he's... He's knocking at all the bars because there are bars. He can't get out. And um, a gentleman, uh, actually the ghost of a gentleman named Linnaeus, appears. Mm-hmm. And our friend asked Linnaeus, well, I know you're a ghost, but can you help me get out of here? And the fellow Linnaeus says, you have to use one of your senses, S-E-N, S-E-S. And then disappears. Okay. Then disappears. The fellow says, "I don't know what the bloody 
hell he was talking about. And then the next morning, he's running out of food, and he looks out the window, and there are a bunch of agaricus species, mushroom, archetypal mushrooms, growing on the mulch outside his lab. And he says, how wonderful. And suddenly, the cladogram tends to disappear. Hmm. I, I think you've, you've followed that story. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there is this, um, I don't know what you would want to call it, this, do you think transcendence would be the right word to be using? No, I don't. <laughs> Not you at don't. all. This is, you know, whatever the opposite is, getting back to the real world. Yeah. The world of one's, what Dylan Thomas called one's five and country senses. Uh, not one's five and country transcends this. Uh, <laughs> but uh, what I think is important is preserving, I mean, even more, okay, you study fungi and you learn about the environment and your study of fungi inspires you to do whatever you can to preserve land. Yeah, and we're losing land at a reckless place pace. And what I think mushroom clubs should do nowadays, instead of they often have banquets, they they focus a lot. I don't know about the. I, I have talked to your LA club. Uh, I thought they were hmm. okay, um, but uh, the focus tends to be on edibility and identification yeah. rather than this is a rare species. How can we preserve the land around it? Or how can we preserve the land where all these mushrooms are growing? That I think is crucial. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And so, but you don't think that there's kind of a, I don't know, a, a spiritual component to that or, or a connectivity that people often feel when they do go outside. Oh, I, time. I connectivity, yes. But yeah. tran not transcendence, because transcendence is, is to me more like mystical. And, yeah, and no, you I think agree a mystical. I, I want the hardcore reality. There is that, yeah. and it's, it's absolutely terrific. Understood, understood. Yeah, so kind of like being in this natural place and smelling and tasting and feeling and listening and just having your senses really kind of overwhelmed by this beauty and this um, this interesting, I mean, that's the thing too about mushrooms, right? They have this historical, at least I think in Western society, and I'm interested to see from you how that um how that kind of comports with um, with more Eastern or indigenous cultures, this kind of um, whimsical, almost, I'm, I'm thinking very like Lewis Carroll, this mm -hmm. kind of fantastical, um, um, I don't know, description to them. Like they're very childlike in a way. They're the stuff of nursery rhymes. They're the stuff of these... Um, fantasy stories and they bring us a lot of joy like when we see mushrooms we're like that is otherworldly mm -hmm. that's Why true do you think they do that for us well here's one ex possible explanation and okay. it, it you know i might be exaggerating here but we're related to mushrooms we have mm -hmm. a common ancestor uh uh a 500 million a year old uh one-celled sea creature called the coanoflagellate. Plants have a different ancestor. Um, we, yeah, we look at a, a chrysanthemum and say, 
oh, isn't that cute? But I think our relationship, our connection with mushrooms goes deeper. Uh, and I would argue only half seriously that the reason it goes deeper is because we have an ancestral connection with them. Um, and it has been uh, presumed by certain people that one reason why we have a hard time fighting fungal infections is because fungi are us. I'm not certain that I would go that far, but who knows? Um, anyway, I think that's one of the reasons. Mm. I think another reason is that the astonishing variety that they proclaim to us when they appear, yeah. uh, it, it means that we can't really immediately come to some conclusion as we would with a chrysanthemum. Oh, that's something we've cultivated. Yeah. Um, and isn't it cute? I mean, what is it? And we want to, some people uh, on a certain level will ask, what is it doing? What's its relationship to the world around it? Well, what I'm actually trying to do is teach people to ask that question. It may be subliminal, but I'm trying to make it less subliminal than I in this book. Advancements in the medical field are giving nurses faster, more effective results than ever before. They should expect the same from their education, too. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format allows you to set your own deadlines and leverage your experience to move faster through your program. So the faster you move, the more money you save. When you're ready, we'll be here. Visit capella.edu for a trial course at no cost to you. Capella University. Don't just learn, learn smarter. And also, I lead numerous mushroom walks all year round, in, mm -hmm. even in the winter in New England. And are there special, I mean, is the biodiversity similar in the winter, or is it just that you have to look a little bit harder and maybe you'll see things that you wouldn't see during the summer? Uh, it's different, uh, because okay. almost everything is on wood or under wood. Uh -huh. um, okay. The wood preserves moisture better than the ground, and there are a number of species that use the wood as a parka. So if they're under the wood, they're not freezing the way they would if they were on top of the wood or growing out of the ground. Um, I recently, it's, it's, you know what the Chris, uh, Christmas bird count is? No, it's but I a, can imagine. <laughs> it's the Audubon Society. Mm -hmm. as a uh, annual Christmas bird count. Uh, they have it over a period of time, maybe three weeks in and around Christmas. Every year I have a Christmas mushroom count. Uh, and um, there are any number of species. We get up to, this year we reached the top. It was 90 different species in mm -hmm. one day. Wow. And all of them had some connection to wood. And... Again, it's because the wood is a substrate that mm -hmm. they can manage and deal. They're, they're cold adapted, some of them as well, so that they have a way of sequestering the moisture between their cells so they won't freeze uh, if freezing conditions occur. Sure. Uh, but, yeah, there are some species that one finds in these parts only in the winter or the late fall or the early spring and not at other times of year. Not many, mm -hmm. but some. 
I mean, the diversity just from like a kind of morphological point of view is so vast. Like when we think of, you know, really biodiverse species like um, uh, or biodiverse, are mushrooms, is it an order? What would we call yeah, like yeah. fungus? It's an a, order? It's okay. a king, no, it's a kingdom. Oh, it's a whole kingdom. Uh, it's okay. a kingdom. Plants are a kingdom. Uh, yeah, animals like, are a kingdom. Uh, I don't know if they're still a protista, like a protozoa, mm-hmm. uh, algae, or kingdom, et cetera. So they're, they're a kingdom. But that kingdom broke off from plants only mm-hmm. recently in the 1960s. Uh, at, at, up to that point, uh, fungi were considered lesser plants, oh, even though they're, they're more closely, far more closely connected to us than plants are. Interesting. So, so do you think we just called them plants historically? Because, I mean, we didn't know. We just didn't know. You look at them right. and you go, plant-like, it's growing out of the ground or it's that's growing right. on something. How that's funny. Right. Just an odd plant. That's what they were considered. Uh, and they were um, diminished. So somebody uh, at a university who studied fungi was considered studying a lower form of plant. Mm-hmm. Um, and, wow. Uh, I mean, they have different char- uh, different behavioral aspects that suggest something akin, I think, to intelligence. Um, you know, they the way they choose, well, the way they get certain critters to come and taxi their spores, for instance. Uh, you know, a lot of them. Uh, have different chemicals that they release that uh, suggest to perhaps uh, a dipteran, a fly, oh, come here. I have something special for you. Maybe mm, something mm-hmm. uh, akin to your, you know, the, uh, uh, a sort of sexual pheromone or yeah, maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe just food. Hey, I smell like rotten carrion. Come and dine on me. They come and they find out they're mistaken, but they carry the spores off uh, and taxi them to a different location. Oh, very cool. And we, I know we often think of like molds, you know, a lot of people will think of mold and they'll think of, Ooh, that's that gross thing that grows on my walls. If, uh, if I have a moisture problem in my house, yeah. but then we start thinking about things like slime molds and different sorts of, um, species that we've encountered that do have this very complex, almost like animal like intelligence. Mm. But slime molds are not in the same kingdom as fungi. They're not. Oh, how they're interesting. not fungi at all. So they shouldn't be called molds, dang it. Um, <laughs> this is very why, confusing. That's <laughs> why they're called, basically the word is myceat, And that probably isn't the best word either because people think mycota, mycete, mycologist. Uh-huh. Uh, but they're more connected. They're more related to amoebas. Most of them are. Oh, that makes uh, sense. And they start out, you know, in sort of tiny little cells moving along. And then they fuse together. And, and the reason people... I mean, up until I don't know when, they were considered, maybe 100 years ago, they were considered fungi because in their final stage, the sporangial phase, they sporulated. Gotcha. And they kind of looked a bit like mushroom. I mean, not really, but they looked a bit like some. Mm, okay, uh, interesting. But, but they're yeah. interesting. And by the way, the, you know, I, I, so just so you won't feel bad uh, as a result <laughs> of that mistake, <laughs> most most guidebooks 
put slime molds in. There's a whole special section really? uh, in in mushroom guidebooks for slime molds, but they don't put lichens in. And lichens huh. are in the same kingdom as fungi. Oh, that's so strange because, I mean, I could see why they would do it because people who are interested in going out and looking at molds might also be interested in finding slime molds, even though they're not, you know, like yeah. you said, kind of as genetically related. But I would think that if you were out looking at, at um, fungus, you would also be interested in looking at lichen. You would think, but here, the reason, here's my explanation. Mm-hmm. I have a feeling it's pretty accurate. Let's say a publisher wants to sell a book. And so he puts in photos of the most charismatic things he can find, or she can find. Um, And lichens, for the most part, aren't as charismatic as certain slime molds. Uh, They they, um, are odd-looking, some of them, yes, but they aren't quite as colorful Mm. They they observe certain color. I mean, there's some that are bright. Is it Xanthorias you find? I, I think you might have them on rocks near the sea where you live. Uh, okay. A yellow a yellow lichen. That mm-hmm. lichen, by the way, is needs a nitrogen fix. And can you guess what it gets that fix from? Mm, the soil? No, probably not, because they're on trees a lot of the time. Where does it get it? Well, bird shit. <laughs> that makes sense. A bird comes, shits on the rock, and then yep. the lichen grows all starting on the top of the wall, rock. Yep. That this makes is, sense. Um, you know, it's called sunburst lichen, uh, Xanthoria species. But apart from that, lichens are gray and silver, light green. And to a publisher, this isn't charismatic at all. Putting pictures mm. of lichens in, in a mushroom book would, would discourage sales. <laughs> so they thought but putting pictures of slime molds I, I don't want to mention which book but this happened with one of my books I wanted to put in lichens not slime molds and the publisher vetoed the idea oh how funny oh my gosh what about yeast yeast is um is a fungus right yes it is and, and so that seems like it has its whole own kind of characteristics. Like it, it seems very different than what we think of when we think of like mushrooms. It, and you are absolutely right. It's yeasts are probably the only fungal entities that don't depend on what's called a mycelium. A mycelium, uh, for those listeners who don't know what that is, it's sort of the uh, hidden root-like portion that creates the mushroom, either inside a log or underground, or even in one's house. Sometimes you mm. more likely see it in one's house as you see this these separating stringlets going off on the bathroom wall. Sometimes those separating stringlets will indeed emulate the, fe- the head of Jesus. Um, and Jesus has appeared quite a bit in bathrooms, you know, because because bathrooms are a perfect place for moisture. Fungi depend on moisture. And these indoor molds, we call them, um, you know, love, what better place? I mean, a, a, a dried up library is not as good as a bathroom. 
So and you're saying it's not because cleanliness is next to godliness. There's no <laughs> association there. That's a, you, this could be a good joke. I mean, if one could <laughs> yeah. think about it. Cleanliness, that uh, actually, that works, that even by itself works well. If one wanted <laughs> to do it, you you can, it's probably all over the internet, there are uh, accounts of somebody in some rural area finding what appears to be the outline of Jesus on their bathroom wall. Yep. <laughs> and, and it's really a mold. That's so uh, funny. So I believe, I believe your, your word for it, your phrase for it works perfectly. oh my gosh that's hilarious and so i mean i have to know as somebody who's like traveled the world who has written about these things who has collected multiple specimens studied them you know understands not just the physiology or the ecology or you know the basic biology but also the humanity um the connectivity of mushrooms with with various peoples do you have a certain type of fungus that you are particularly drawn to? Is I mean, it's so hard to say, like, what's your favorite child? But is there a, a grouping or... It's, you know, it's is the there... one I'm looking at at, at, at this very moment. Is uh, it? Well, no, this very moment being whatever the moment is in, oh. in, the, in the field. But, <laughs> but, you know, I could say what I prefer. I prefer um, what's called polypores. These, okay. these are usually pretty robust wood-inhabiting species. Some of them are perennial, mm-hmm. um, and some of them, uh, there's one, the artist conch, Ganoderma aplanatum, uh, that has been, oh, it, they examined, and a, a specimen was found to be 73 years old. Oh, wow. Uh, they can, a lot of them can live as long as they're getting nutrients from the wood. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I really like them. They're sort of the wise elders of kingdom fungi. And I also like their robustness. Like if you find some little pretty delicate yellow and pink mushrooms, by the time that you get home, they might be dried up. But if mm-hmm. you collect polypores, uh, I have one on my table right now. It's, I have an entry on it. Haplopores. Haploporus, it's a haploporus species, and it has an anise-like smell. And the yeah. native people uh, in the, oh, the north would use it as to repel evil spirits. Hmm. Um, and I have it on my desk for the same purpose, uh, to repel evil spirits. And <laughs> I, I have to say that it's been very seldom that an evil spirit has shown <laughs> has shown up here. <laughs> oh my gosh, I love that. You you mentioned like the hardiness of these. How do mushrooms usually die? Is it that they've been on something that has decayed to the point where there's no nutrition left and they just kind of dry up? Or, I mean, what does the life cycle look well, like of, see, a, of a traditional the, mushroom? The, pro- the problem with that question, Kara, is that there's, you know, there's so many different types of mushrooms yeah. and they all die differently. I mean, hmm. you could. How do mammals die? Could you answer yeah. that question? I uh, guess their they their organs break down, but they also die from disease and from injury and from yeah, that's true. And, and from so pollution. And how do people yeah. die from disease yeah. and viruses and old age? And with respect to the polypores, let's say, but it often with uh, the polypores uh, and other wood inhabiting fungi, it's when there are no longer any nutrients left in the wood. 
but mm. they will have sporulated, releasing billions, billions of spores, so wow. that the next generation, and you could even argue that they are prolonging their own lives by re reducing their spore, or releasing their spores somewhere else. So you can say, you know, maybe that's not an offspring of that fungus I saw 10 years ago. It's simply the same one in a slightly younger guise. Because mm -hmm. wow, it comes from funny. its spores. But of course, one could say that about a human child, the, you know, great, 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 great grandson of George Washington. And, you know, that's not uh, a young kid today. That's George Washington uh, <laughs> in camouflage. Yeah, just shuffled by, up a bit with the some way, other people. I, yeah, I should mention something I'm, I'm sort of working on. Uh, there is a lichen, an umbilicaria lichen. This is called rock tripe, tree rose, that grows on rocks and boulders. And my guess is you don't have it in Southern California, especially on glacial erratics. Okay. And, you know, it is, if you boil it, um, it is an edible. Uh, native people had it as an edible when everything else ran out. Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't have a whole lot of flavor. It has texture, which is why in Japan it is well-liked, but not a lot of flavor. But it is thought that George Washington and his men survived Valley Forge, the cold, cold winter, and that, that's not a problem for any lichen much less this one, uh, umbilicaria species. It survived Valley Forge by eating this lichen. Now, if that's mm. the case, we owe our freedom from British tyranny to a, li <laughs> to a lichen. Wow. Yeah. Not charismatic, my ass. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> That's a good, very good, well put, by the way. <laughs> very felicitous. Yes, thank you, thank you. Oh my gosh, I love that. That's uh, that's amazing. Yeah, perpetuated. It's you know, look up umbilicus umbilicaria species Roche. It also did. Um, it's not putative. It did. John Sir John Franklin. Uh, you know who he was? The Arctic explorer. He uh, they ran out of food on one of their expeditions, and they survived by eating Roche. Uh, oh gosh! And um, you know that's well documented. Mm -hmm. If you look at his journals, that's from 1820. If you look at his journals, toward the end when they were after they ran out of food and they eaten their boots, mm -hmm. uh, natives told them about this, and every page uh, has a variation of spent the day looking for Treep de Roche. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. It's, I mean, it's it's fascinating how you've written several books up to this point. Obviously, your publisher reached out and sent me a copy of Fungipedia, and that was kind of the impetus for us to get together to have this conversation. Um, and this is also your most recently published book. Yes. It's interesting how all of these stories, not all of them, but of course, a lot of these stories really do come together in this almost like pocket compendium. It really is a, mm -hmm. an encyclopedia. And it's not like, oh, this this species, that species, this species, that species. It's also got people. It's also got stories. It's also got, um, you know, parts of, you know, the things that make them up, the way that we use them. 
how on earth did you decide, A, what to include in this? Because it co- probably could have been thousands of pages long, or it could have been this very you know, concise compendium that you put together. And B, how did you decide, I guess this is a separate conversation, um, to make the book so whimsical in its appearance? You know, it's cloth covered. It's got these fabulous... Um, drawings by Amy Jean Porter, these beautiful, um, you know, kind of natural history drawings. Um, I mean, there's so much that went into something that's so deceptively kind of small and simple. I'd love to hear your process about that. Well, I wrote the book and then Princeton decided on hiring Amy Jean to make these whimsical drawings. And they also did the cover and they also did the design. So that part of it was not up to me at all. They were maybe uh, expanding on my text, you could say. Mm-hmm. But in terms of the book, I, you know, I don't know. I've written 18 books. Oh, my gosh. 18? Yeah. How many of them have been, you know, academic books versus, uh, I guess, what you would call like popular kind of trade books? Well, I'd say not a single one of them has been an academic book, unless you want to call this an academic book. It was published mm. by an academic press, but, yeah, it's, but it's, it's for so, the so-called citizen scientists. Yeah, and you see this on, I've seen this like highlighted on, you know, um, like when you walk into stores in Joshua Tree, when you walk into very kind of like modern, kind of cool, kitschy, you know, houseware stores and things like that. This book I've seen in a lot of places. Because you have? Oh, well. Oh, yeah. I, I appreciate your telling me that. <laughs> Absolutely. Because it's, A, it's beautiful to look at, but it's also really interesting. And it's digestible. You know what I mean? It's not overwhelming from a scientific perspective. Yes. It, it well, is whimsical. It's fun. Well, well that's lovely. I actually um, walked into the one of the few bookstores in Labrador in early November. And mm-hmm. what should I see but this book staring at me? <laughs> <laughs> that must be such a fun experience. It was a fun experience. And then I delight in getting emails from friends who are spread out across North America saying, I picked it up in my local bookstore. Yeah. So it has been distributed very well. And I would say that rather than ask me what books are academic, what books of mine have been well distributed, I'd say very few Mm. apart from this one. Well, and one of the things that, you know, we, it kind of came out secondarily when we were conversing prior to connecting about um, your um, not so, uh, let's say, affiliative relationship with with computers and technology, (laughs) um, is that you've had some previous books that are, I guess, less about something, you know, like a specific type of mushroom or a specific type of this or that, but more about you know, human beings relationship with nature that you've mm-hmm. really this, this theme that's been very important to you, which is reconnecting with the natural world, spending time outside and seeing the real, I guess, threat that our behavior and our decision making um, has. Well, this started with my first book that I mentioned to you, wow. our like will not be there again. I was mm-hmm. on a small island in the west of Ireland Everyone communicated, and then suddenly the first television arrived in a bar 
and people stopped talking. And mm. the people who, who didn't care for it referred to it as the monster. Wow. And essentially, the book, one of the themes of that book is how television has replaced storytelling in the West of Ireland. And I pursue this theme right up to uh, two books ago. It's called At the End of the World, published by St. Martin's, 2017. And what it does, and there's a bit of stuff about mushrooms there. I refer to a particular unusual species and say, I would rather find it than find a bag of gold. Hmm. Um, mm -hmm. But what it does is it documents a series of murders in the Arctic among very traditional people who were just introduced to Christianity. And okay. I had a hard time turning this into a book until I decided that I couldn't write about the past. This was in 1941 without writing about the present. And I wrote about the present religion, which was screens, be they computer screens, uh, iPhone screens, or television screens. And in a very, essentially, I saw that as an equally destructive religion to the one uh, that affected this group of animists in the Canadian Arctic. Wow. Uh, and Gee. I document instances where, for instance, in Boston one day I was walking along and I saw a woman with her cell phone swaggering the way they do, zombie-like, back and forth. And I said, if she's going left, I'll go right. If she's going right, I'll go left. And I made a mistake and she smashed into me and she said, oh, I'm so sorry. I was just trying to find out the weather. <laughs> and oh, no. I, I, I pointed skyward, smiled, and limp, limped on. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, there's, that's just some brutal irony for you there right is. there. And then I saw somewhere, this was in Vermont, it was... I was going through the woods and there was a little kid, maybe four, four years old, following the mother through the woods. I don't know where they were going. I was looking for mushrooms. Uh, and the little kid was saying over and over again, password, 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 mm -hmm. password. Yeah. Uh, obviously having learned it from a parent. Yeah, you do see that, it. You know, there's all the examples of kids swiping books to try and turn the page. Oh, yeah. Because that's yeah. What they're used to on their iPads. And yeah, I mean, it is, you know, obviously we could spend a whole other hour talking about the the good that comes from connectivity across the world and also a lot of the kind of evils of this. But um, it, it, obviously none of that undermines the argument that... Um, that we're missing something when we just don't go outside. And it's not just that we're missing something. Oh yeah, we're missing something. Like it is our evolutionary past. Like it is really who mm -hmm. we are to be in nature. And the fact that we are completely and utterly, you know, destroying, al altering. It's such a big conversation to be had, right? Like this conversation about, the way that we have altered our natural world to like we to we've bent it to suit our kind of selfish needs the way that we have separated ourselves from the natural world you know there's that classic um cartoon i don't know if you've seen it called the fence 
where uh, it, it shows several different window panes, you know, several different cells of the cartoon. And in the first one, it shows like a globe and the globe is completely covered with like lush green nature. And then there's a tiny little fence surrounding something. And it says, you know, we call it the fence um, and we keep it there. Um, I don't remember. I'm, I'm paraphrasing for sure to keep the predators out or to keep, you know, to keep ourselves safe. And then mm-hmm. eventually at the very end, it's like we call it the fence and it's the whole world is barren and the fence is actually surrounding the natural components. And that's really what what we see now. Natural parks, uh, sorry, national parks, wildlife preserves, things like that. Like what we think of as quote unquote wild is now yeah. in many ways protected. It itself is fenced off from what we think of as civilized or, you know, developed across the globe. It's it's the antithesis. It's the opposite of what these kinds of barriers originally, I guess, were developed to to serve. And it's I know. And that's why I don't like existentially violent. That's why I don't like urban parks unless I'm looking for mushrooms in them. Because uh, all around are uh, signs of urban development. I I should mention that in this book, At the End of the World, the one about the two destructive religions, I Mm -hmm. was uh, in the islands where the murders occurred uh, 60 years later, of course, during 9-11. 9-11. And there was one TV. Um, I was there with a bunch of Inuit watching outtakes from 9-11. And yeah. I'll never forget what one elderly man said looking at New York's remaining skyline. He said, how can people live so far above the ground? Yeah, and it's we don't even think about it. It's just so normal to us now. It's so normal. We don't think about it. Wow. That that I mean that kind of profound statement, that kind of, you know, rhetorical question really. Um <clears throat> it's a good it's a good transition point for me because, you know, I don't want to take up too much of your time today to kind of flip over to um, what we generally do at the end of the show where I ask my two closing questions. But maybe before we do that, I just want to ask you first, is there anything that you think we haven't covered? Anything that um, you know we wish we would have talked about up to this point that we haven't gotten to? Uh, y- yes, and, and we would need to have, let's see, somewhere between 60 and 70 more interviews to cover those subjects. <laughs> well, perfect. Um, because you know, <laughs> the way I do this is I move in and out of the fungal world. I mean, talking mm-hmm. about fungi, you know, what, what uh, John Muir said is when you look at nature, you find that everything is hitched to everything else. So yeah. somehow we I'm talking about mushrooms and I'm ending up mentioning uh, a remark made by an Inuit elder. How can people live so far above the ground? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I don't, I mean, there, there are quite a few other things. Um what I could probably say, uh, first thing that comes to mind is to tell listeners, get outside, leave mm-hmm. your abode, turn your computer off, leave your cell phone indoors, go out and look for fungi and admire them, stare at them in wonder, and don't collect them. Because one of the issues that the book mentions is over-collecting. Yeah. You know, there's a huge industry in the Pacific Northwest where certain edibles are collected. 
And over time, this is going to um, reduce the genetic uh, identities of species, make them susceptible the way that certain people in small towns in Maine are to inbreeding in a way that doesn't help with uh, intelligence. And mm -hmm. the result then is also going to be fewer fungi. Fewer fungi will mean a less healthy world. So that's why I'm saying uh, in this sort of roundabout way, stare and admire and don't pick. Yeah, I mean, that's obviously incredible advice, not just that, but the advice about going outside and just existing in nature and really observing. And I, I have a feeling that that advice is also going to be tied um, to your answers to my two final questions. I could be wrong, but um, if you're ready for them, they're sort I'm of like ready. big picture questions. Okay, so I want you to um, think about the future in whatever context is really relevant to you, you know, right now in your in your life, in your work, um, yeah, and beyond. So, so number one, I want you to tell me, um, what is the thing that really does keep you up the most at night? The thing that you are deeply, maybe even like existentially concerned about. Um, but then on the flip side of that, um, so that maybe we end on a little bit of a high note, what is the thing that you are genuinely and like truly authentically optimistic about? What are you looking forward to? Well, the answer to the first question, what keeps me up at night is contemplating climate change and mm -hmm. the not only imminent disasters, I've spent a lot of time in the Arctic, uh, the ongoing disasters. Uh, uh, the Northwest Passage used to be blocked with ice. And in 2015, a 13-deck cruise ship called the Crystal Serenity sailed through the Northwest Passage from Seattle to New York without a single problem. To me, that's terrifying. Yeah. In answer to questions about this word optimism, I'm not certain what it means. <laughs> uh, I am not a very optimistic person. My ex told me once that I was a laugh glass half empty sort of person. I said, no, that's not true. I'm a glass two thirds empty sort of person. <laughs> um, but uh, optimism comes when I connect with some of my friends and we have similar beliefs. I am not um, optimistic about the future of our planet. Yeah. And uh, when I think optimistically, I have to think in terms of uh, something else uh, on a much smaller scale, like, oh, I'm looking forward to getting out in the woods today. Something maybe a bit more egocentric, because personally, and you can use this or not, I think it's hopeless. I think we've mm -hmm. all already passed the, the mark with respect to, let's say, carbon emissions, but also lots of other things that uh, will allow us to go back. Overpopulation, yeah. um, major issue. Can we underpopulate now that we've overpopulated? Can we go from seven and a half billion down to one million? No. So I, I really don't have much hope. 
I mean, I think that that's fair. And in a, in a big way, I think it's really refreshing to hear somebody speak in that way, because I think that we have a tendency, especially in kind of Western society to like put a silver lining on everything, to wrap everything up in a shiny bow and say, even though X, Y, and Z, look at the bright side, look at how, you know, look at what is good that uh, about this. And the truth of the matter is, I think we're we are optimizing, optimisticalizing ourselves into oblivion. Um, mm -hmm. We are so good at saying, yeah, but we'll figure it out. Yeah, but it's not as bad as it seems. Uh, yeah, but let's take the positive with the negative that we basically are undermining um, the reality of the situation. So I think it's really refreshing to hear that kind of perspective because we don't hear it often enough. Well, and also when, you, when one thinks in these terms, uh, there's not a whole lot of room for disappointment. You're not going to fall very far if you fall. Whereas if someone is an optimist and uh, hears the, the seas have risen uh, sufficiently high that in five years, both New York City and Los Angeles will become uh, aquatic, uh, mm -hmm. that person will, uh, he will crash or she will crash to the ground. Whereas if I hear something like this, I will say, well, I expected that. Absolutely. I mean, there really is a difference, I think, between being a pessimist or being a cynic and having a realistic outlook. And the problem is that the reality of what is happening right now is almost indistinguishable from cynicism because it really yeah. truly is that I agree. Bad. I agree. Yeah. Totally agree. Yeah. I totally agree. Um, cynicism or pessimism. Um, I mean, there's a certain... To acknowledge that it's hopeless frees you to, at least in your own life, to pursue what's important to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and that, to me, is uh, it's one of the reasons why, rather than run for Congress, much less president, uh, why... I haven't become a city councilor with the hope that, oh, well, let's uh, create some more green space in Cambridge. Look, there's a vacant lot. Let's turn it into green space. Why I haven't uh, diminished myself by mm -hmm. doing something like that. But instead, spend your time, you know, really being able to kind of squeeze what joy what kind of existential i guess meaning you can out of existing in in what nature we have left i agree and make yeah. me making uh in the process a few converts from uh, by uh, individuals who have read my writing Absolutely. Well, I guess now would be the time to remind people that the book is Fungipedia, a brief compendium of mushroom lore by Lawrence Millman. Larry, thank you so much for spending the time that you spent with me today and for trusting in the process. I know that there was a lot of technical um, requirements to be able to do it. And so I'm really glad that we were able to. I am too. Work. And I, I'm delighted to have this conversation, more like a conversation than an interview with you. Yes. Thank you so, so much. And everybody listening, thank you for coming back week after week. I'm really looking forward to the next time we all get together to talk nerdy. Mm -hmm.